Hello and welcome to Podcast by Brodies. My name's David Lee and in this series we take an in-depth look at some common and not so common questions and scenarios that Brodies lawyers have faced over the years. In this first series we're joined by Advocacy by Brodies, the team of solicitor advocates within the firm who work at the front line of the law across many disciplines, from land to litigation and public law to parliamentary affairs. In each episode, we talk to experts from Advocacy by Brodies to hear their insights and experiences, which allow them to find the right approach when they're asked the deceptively simple question, what do I do if? In this episode, we hear from two highly experienced lawyers from Brodies, Neil McLean, solicitor advocate and partner, and Johanna Boyd, barrister and associate. They will address the question, what do I do if? I need a lawyer in court. So, Neil, first of all, in what circumstances might someone need representation in court? Well, as you would expect, David, there could be a whole range of reasons a person needs a lawyer in court. And those things could include you're acting as an individual or a company and you're pursuing a civil claim against a person for compensation or damages. Or you could be looking to enforce some other type of legal right that you have, like a right to property. You could be appealing a decision that's been taken, for example, in relation to the grant of a permit, a license, or for planning permission. Or you could be looking to challenge a decision of government about a particular government policy or decision. And you'll have seen those challenges come through um, during uh, the lockdown to some of the COVID rules. So that's an example of that. But there's a huge and diverse list of reasons in between all of those things uh, as to why you would need a lawyer in court. Joanne, I don't know if you've got anything to add. Well, just, uh, Neil, in relation to circumstances where an individual might choose to represent themselves in court. So that is, of course, possible. Um, they are referred to in Scotland as a party litigant or in England and Wales as a litigant in person. And you would most commonly find someone representing themselves in relatively straightforward cases. So in Scotland, that would be, um, for example, in, in simple procedure cases or in the small claims court in uh, England and Wales. Now, whilst uh, a litigant in person or a party litigant could represent themselves in the higher courts, uh, we, Brodie's thinks that is likely to carry much more risk. Uh, because the case is likely to be more complex in terms of the law and the outcome uh, for the individual or for the company or the organisation is likely to be more serious or important um, to that particular litigant. So we would always adla- advise having proper legal representation uh, in a more serious matter. Okay, and just before we move on, Johanna, is it is it common for people to represent themselves as party litigants in the higher courts or is it is it very rare i i would say it's relatively rare david for that to happen um of course any um judge will be incredibly supportive. Um, What uh, must be ensured is that there is fairness and parity. And uh, in our experience, um, a a judge or a decision maker will want to ensure that that uh, litigant in person is given every opportunity uh, to put their best foot forward. 
But as uh, I say, where it's more complex, where the outcome is more serious, then we would always advise having uh, a lawyer involved in the case. Okay. And then more specifically, what would you say are the direct benefits of actually instructing someone who does have those specific advocacy skills to represent you in court? Well, the courtroom, and when I say the courtroom, it might be a tribunal uh, that's uh, involved or it might be an inquiry hearing, is a very dynamic environment. So um, very often you've got to be prepared for the unexpected to happen. Now, that could be uh, your opponent raising a new point without any form of notice Or maybe your judge or your sheriff or your tribunal chair raises a query that that no one's uh, considered up to that point. Or someone uh, might simply fail to turn up. Or you might be um, questioning someone whilst they're on the stand and they say something again that's completely unexpected to everyone in the room. So, David, it's that um, ability to respond and think quickly on your feet that's really important and beneficial uh, for a client. And that um, ability is developed through specialist training and it's developed through experienced. Um, So those specialist courtroom lawyers, so whether that's a solicitor advocate or a barrister, it's their job uh, really to instill the confidence in the judge or the sheriff or the decision maker um, that they can be trusted Uh, to fulfil their their duty to the court. And I think that's really important to say that the primary duty of of a a courtroom lawyer, solicitor, advocate or barrister, is uh, um, to the court in the administration um, of justice. But it's for all those reasons uh, that there is a real benefit to having someone on your team with that specialist um, advocacy skill. And and Neil, will will it make a difference to winning or losing? It's a pretty basic question. <laughs> I think this is a fascinating topic. You can read all sorts of, of studies about the importance or not of, of oral advocacy. Um, and I think that what's beyond dispute is that the amount of oral advocacy, and by that I mean people appearing in court in person, is in decline Cases in the appeal court in Scotland um, are now conducted much more efficiently with hearings often lasting a day when in the past they might have lasted three or four days. And partly that's been driven by necessity because courts are busier than they've ever been before, which means there's a drive to deal with cases on written submissions only. But it's also because the judges are well prepared. Um, Now you'll find they've often read all of the papers before you appear in court. And they're there simply to test your case, which is a daunting prospect for any any solicitor advocate. Um, I've seen studies that suggest that oral advocacy only makes a difference in about 10 to 15 percent of cases, with judges having already made up their mind before the case comes to them in court. Um, But I'm not so sure that that's an easy thing to measure, to be honest. Um, There's a dynamic in court that's quite hard to describe. Um, You can feel in a case the sort of ebb and flow of it um, as the submissions develop before um, the decision maker. And what you can see sometimes in real time is a shift in a judge's view because of the submission that they've just heard. And cases that are difficult to call, I think there's no substitute for oral advocacy um, because that 10 or 15%, if that's a true number, might make all all the difference. 
Um, it, it's something that, that judges have actually talked about in court decisions as well. There's a, a case, Sen Gupta against Holmes, uh, and the late Lord Justice Laws in that case said, oral argument is perhaps the most powerful force there is in our legal process to promote a change of mind by a judge. That judges, in fact, change their minds under the influence of oral argument is not an arcane feature of the system. It, it is at the centre of it. It's commonplace for a hearing to start with a clear expression of view by the judge or judges, which might strongly favour one side. That means that the advocate knows where they are and that position has to be met and one often meets it. So that you know, is a really succinct analysis from a judge as to why oral advocacy is important. Okay. And let's say a client decides, yes, I'm going to go ahead. I'm I'm not going to do it myself. I am going to instruct an advocate, solicitor advocate or barrister uh, to appear for me. How do they go about it? What do they do? So in terms of instructing um, uh, an advocate or solicitor advocate, well, advocates are normally instructed through solicitors. And there are also ways that advocates can be instructed via rules called direct access, and but that's obviously not something I, I have experience of doing. In terms of instructing a solicitor advocate, that's usually done via your existing solicitors if you have them. Um, so like in our firm, there are a, a range of solicitor advocates um, who, who are also lawyers within the firm. So our colleagues will often instruct us um, on cases. Or alternatively, you can instruct a solicitor advocate direct. So you can approach them um, if you have their contact details and ask them to, to appear for you in court. And Johanna, when should uh, a client step in? At what point is it right to instruct an advocate or solicitor advocate at what stage in proceedings? The earlier you can involve your advocate, the better. So as soon as possible, I think the answer to that one's quite um, simple, David. It, it, it allows the advice uh, to be provided at every step in the legal proceedings. And that's going to give the client the best a chance of achieving the outcome that they're looking for in the case. So as soon as possible. Okay. And how do you become an advocate, Neil? You know, in Scotland first, we'll come to England and Wales in a minute, but if, you, if you're a lawyer, you think, I quite fancy that advocacy thing. How? What do you have to do? So I'm going to talk about becoming a solicitor advocate. There's a separate process and training to become an advocate at the bar in Scotland. So firstly, it's important to recognise that there are specialist court advocates that are solicitors. Solicitors hold a law degree and a diploma in legal practice and will have completed a legal traineeship. Scotland has a very strong tradition of advocacy being conducted by solicitors. And across the country in the courts, you will see specialists in criminal law, personal injury, family law and public law, um, all conducting their own advocacy. But in Scotland, you also have solicitor advocates like me. Uh, I'm not going to talk about criminal solicitor advocates, which is a separate type of training. Um, the difference is that a solicitor advocate has rights of audience in the higher courts, uh, meaning they can present cases in the Court of Session in Scotland and in the UK Supreme Court, but also the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council. Um, to become a solicitor advocate, you must pass either the similar civil or criminal rights of audience training and satisfy a law society committee that you have the relevant skills and knowledge um, and are fit and proper to have rights of audience in the higher courts. Um, the training consists of practical advocacy skills, training and exams. And if you pass those exams, you're granted rights of audience. And Neil, what do you think it is that makes a good 
solicitor advocate you know what qualities do you think you've got and what do you see in others what do you think makes someone who's a really good effective uh, court performer so in terms of the skills, well, one of the benefits of being a solicitor advocate is you've got the opportunity to work on cases right through to completion, which really builds a strong client-solicitor relationship. So you're really invested in that relationship um, from start to finish. So that's that's the client relationship side. Um, in terms of the practical skills, uh, Joanne has mentioned already, the ability to think on your feet is very important. Um, and that's a skill that you develop over time with experience. So you need to be able to do that. You need to obviously to be able to take uh, a lot of information because a lot of these cases could be quite complex and trying to distill it into points that you can get across in a clear way and which can be easily understood by your decision maker. Um, and ultimately, advocacy is all about persuasion. So at the end of the day, you need to be able to persuade that decision maker um, to believe in your case and to grant what you're looking for in, in your favour. OK. And in terms of that training that Neil's talked about, Johanna, how does that differ in England and Wales? So to become a, a barrister in England and Wales, uh, David, you need to have uh, either a law degree or if you've got a non-law degree, you would then have to uh, get a graduate uh, diploma in law. Um, and in your final year of either your law degree or when you're doing that conversion course, you would apply for pupillage. And that's really the practical element of your training that's done with a set of chambers. Um, there's a second part to that practical training, which is what's referred to as the vocational component. Um, now, traditionally, that's taken the form of the bar vocational training course. And that's where you might be learning more about the practical skills that you need uh, to become a barrister and the, and the knowledge. So that might be around advocacy skills, negotiation skills, um, evidence and, and uh, court procedure and so on. Um, now, when you're uh, after that year, you then move into your year of pupillage. Um, now, you do that, as I've mentioned, at a set of chambers where which is just a grouping, really, of, of self-employed barristers. Um, just to give a sense of, of the numbers uh, that make it through to that stage, it's, it's obviously a quite a competitive process. So um, just by way of example, there were two about 200 applicants, I think, to my former set of chambers um, for for two pupillages. So so it's it's um quite a, a an intense process there. And what you're doing is is a 12 month um, training year, if you like, as an apprentice and you spend uh, what's it's broken down into periods of six months. So you'll have your first six where you'll just be following um, another uh, barrister around. And then in the second six, you're able to take on your own cases. And when you get to the end of that year, um, there'll be a process that you'll go through that will differ from uh, one set of chambers to another. Uh, where a decision will be taken whether to offer you what's referred to as a as a tenancy. So, for example, in my experience, every barrister in uh, the chambers had a vote and a bit like a sort of um, Britain's Got Talent or the X Factor or something like that. Um, you were either voted to stay or, or, or not. And that had to be a unanimous vote. Um, so once you get through that, that uh, process, you're then there as a, as a self-employed um, advocate and you generate your income from fees 
that are charged for your work. And that's either you might be acting um, usually on your, on your own, or you may be a junior in the member, a junior member of a of a team. Um, and just a final point uh, on that: you actually pay chambers a percentage of those earnings as rent, and that will cover the costs of chambers' expenses and any other shared overheads that you might have with with other uh, members of chambers. And obviously, Johanny you know, you're very familiar with all of that. To the general public, it probably is a bit baffling. So when it comes to looking at what's happening in a courtroom, let's say we're in Scotland, understanding what what does a solicitor do? What does a solicitor advocate do? What the counsel do? Um, how do you get that across to clients who are a bit bemused by the complexity of it all? So I think the key difference, David, and we've already touched on this um, as to what's a specialist courtroom lawyer doing, whether that's a barrister or solicitor advocate, and what is a solicitor doing, I think the key difference is that point around advocacy. So if you're in the courtroom and you're on your feet or in front of an inquiry or, or um, at a tribunal, you're using your voice to represent your client. Um, and usually you'll be provided the details of any case that you're instructed on through a solicitor. And as I've already mentioned, um, as a, certainly at the bar, you, you tend to be self-employed. Um, so the difference between that and a solicitor is that with it being a solicitor, you are almost always the first point of contact for that client. Um, you will frequently also be involved in things that may be non-contentious so and going nowhere near a courtroom. So you might be drafting legal documents, negotiating with other parties and advising clients on a much more routine and frequent basis, having that um, close relationship that, that Neil's already touched upon. Um, solicitors do, of course, um, in Scotland very regularly appear in court, um, and that's usually um, at the lower levels. Um, but I think those are the key differences in terms of the roles that are being fulfilled. But I think it is really important just to emphasise that it, it really is a team effort. So um, solicitor advocates and, and barristers, advocates have a different role, but it's it's really the coming together of, of the whole legal team that's going to make the difference in terms of the outcome for the client. Okay. And Neil, something else that bemuses the public at times is is the whole kind of pomp and ceremony, the wigs and, and so forth. Isn't isn't that all a bit old fashioned and, and, and why? Why do we still do that? So I'll, I'll be candid. I'm not a huge fan of court dress. And my own view is that the removal of court dress is a positive and, and progressive step. Um, but I do appreciate that view is not shared by everyone in the legal profession. And I think there was a, a survey conducted recently which seemed to suggest that a lot of the profession remains in favour of it. That said, I mean, in general, in all European countries, lawyers have worn robes which demonstrate the role that they perform in court. And I understand that it's because wigs were fashionable in the 18th century and that everyone in high society was wearing them that they just became part of the dress in court of members of the bar. And that tradition just stayed. So I think that's the reason we've got them in the UK. The other reason that's often given for wearing wigs in court is that 
courts are hierarchical places and dress was used to distinguish between the roles and indicate who is an authority. So you would have a judge in a wig and a particular coloured gown on the bench. Below them, you would have um, the counsel who are presenting the case and behind them, you would have um, solicitors. That's the way that it would appear in court. In Scotland, the requirement to wear wigs and gowns was removed in 2014 from the inner house of the Court of Session, which is our highest court. And that was really to reflect the practice that had been happening in the Supreme Court by then, where no wigs and gowns were worn. And then in 2019, the outer house in the Court of Session removed uh, the requirement to wear wigs and gowns, save for some uh, evidential proceedings. Um, so regardless of my own views on, on court dress, I do agree that courts are serious in solemn places and the ceremony of, of sheriffs or judges coming onto the bench is, is certainly important to me. Um, it shifts the mood in the court and everybody knows that it's time to focus on the issues in the case and their importance to clients. Um, the final point I want to make is in relation to gavels. Nothing sends a court lawyer into more of a rage than seeing a gavel in a UK television courtroom drama as the judge passes sentences and, and hits their hammer off the bench. There's an excellent Twitter account called Inappropriate Gavels, which has collected them all. And it's a sorry list of errors across a range of TV programmes that ought to know better. So much so that I'm convinced that programme makers are now simply trolling the legal community by featuring gavels in court. Right, that's a brilliant idea for another podcast, kind of not just gavels, but just inappropriate legal coverage and errors in TV dramas. Um, so we'll we'll note that one for the future. Um, so Neil, you touched on this before. Just a couple of personal experiences here from both of you. Um, you you sort of hinted at a court experience that didn't go so well. Uh, tell us a bit about that. Well, I think my experience is quite common to all, all junior lawyers. So, so early on in your career, you might get sent to a sheriff court in some part of the country to deal with a procedural issue. And normally it's straightforward and you appear and you, you get what you ask for and the case moves on to the more substantive of hearing. But sometimes an unforeseen issue arises and it's not anybody's fault. It's just you look at the papers and think, oh, we've, there's a step here that maybe hasn't been, been completed quite right. And you get into court and the sheriff comes on the bench and, and they've had a very long morning already dealing with all sorts of issues that they don't want to deal with. And they, they see your case and your sort of bright, fresh face and then begin to express a very firm view about what should happen. And of course, that happened to me quite early on in my career. Now, at that point, you're you're initially resistant because you've prepared for a certain outcome and that's not what's happening in the courtroom. But it becomes quite clear that it's an argument you can't win. Uh, and you then start to receive really tough time from, from the sheriff. And you start to feel quite vulnerable. And remember being on the, on the receiving end of one of these sorts of dressings down in, in Hamilton Sheriff Court and, and kind of walking away and feeling a bit bruised by the whole encounter. But actually one of the sort of regular court lawyers got me a cup of tea and sort of I could feel this arm on my shoulder. And he was just saying, you know, we all have to go through something like this and it won't be won't be the last time in your career it happens but you'll certainly certainly remember it and what about you johanna any experiences you remember that didn't quite work out as you'd hoped Quite similar to Neil, I would say, um, in that uh, having a hostile judge, I think that's something that will always stay with you and uh we we had to run the housing possession list in a, a certain London County Court where the the judge there um, had a very very low opinion of the London Borough Local Authority, 
And he was renowned for taking any and every point that he possibly could uh, and regularly finding against uh, the local authority in question for any reason uh, that that was going. Um, and that was pretty bruising, you know, having to do that week in, week out, knowing that you were the the shield that was just going to take the 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 bombs that were being lobbed your way. Um, but I think what you learn from that is that you is resi- resilience. You have to be resilient. Um, you must not take it personally. If uh, the, the person in front of you, the decision maker that you're dealing with, has formed a view of your client and that... Uh, is being reinforced on a weekly basis, then, then it's a, it's a tough place to be. Uh, but you've got to do your job. You've got to act in the best interests of your client, um, and turn up the next week with a smile on your face and uh, move forward. And, and what about that more positive side? What about things that do put a smile on your face, Johanna? What do you actually like most about appearing in court? I think using your voice to persuade, to advocate, to influence the court in a way that really delivers for your client, uh, that brings about um, an outcome that they are really desperate for, that they want, um, being a key part of a winning team. That's the best, best bit about it for me. And what about you, Neil? Oh, I was going to say when it's over, but, but joking. <laughs> but, but joking aside, you, if you like adrenaline, then you like appearing in court because there's lots of adrenaline in court. And personally, there's there's no doubt that that's part of the attraction um, to me. I, I suppose a more earnest answer, and, and which in my case I think is also true, is an interest in the law and legal argument. I mentioned earlier um, that the ebb and flow of a court case and I really enjoy that I enjoy seeing the arguments develop I enjoy seeing um, how they are landing with the decision maker and and of course there's also a great deal of satisfaction in helping clients particularly in situations which can be high stress as they often are in a courtroom Great stuff so thank you very much to Neil McLean and to Johanna Boyd uh, for sharing their insights in this latest episode of the What Do I Do If series. Uh, the series is brought to you by Podcast by Brodies where some of the country's leading lawyers and guests share enlightened thinking about the big issues and developments having an impact on the legal sector and in turn what does that mean for organizations businesses and individuals across the UK economy and society if you'd like to hear more please subscribe to podcast by brodies on all your main podcast platforms and for more information and insights please visit www.brodies.com mm-hmm.